Welcome back to The Shorter, a podcast on the Shorter Catechism, where two pastors take 20-something minutes to confess their way through the 107 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm your host, Tommy Park, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Spinnenweber. Hey, hey, everybody. It's good to have you back on the podcast, and it is especially good to see this man on the podcast with us today. We have with us Dr. Ben Shaw. He is currently professor at Reformation Bible College, professor of Old Testament, but more famously, he was also my professor at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, uh, where, Dr. Shaw, you were there since the dawn of time. Is that correct? Uh, pretty close. Uh, I started in January of 91, so I was there for 29 years. That was the year before I was born. So, <laughs> Dr. Shaw, it's so good to, to see you via the Zoom and uh, really glad and excited for all the work you're doing down there at Reformation Bible College. Thanks for making the time with us, Rabbi. Thank you. It's my, my, my privilege to do it. Well, first, just tell us a little more about yourself, maybe your upbringing. You know, were you raised Christian, not a Christian? Maybe your sense of call to ministry, uh, your work as a professor. Uh, yeah, I uh, I grew up in a Christian home, uh, but it was in a PCUSA church, a liberal PCUSA church. And so uh, while I believe my parents were Christians, they were not well educated, either biblically or theologically. And um, I knew nothing of the Shorter Catechism or even of the Westminster Assembly growing up. Uh, when I uh, went through... Um, Catechism went through, well, not really catechism class, but the, the class they ran for the early teenagers to get them to join the church. And I think I have a vague memory of Westminster Assembly being mentioned, uh, but that was about the extent of it. Uh, I was not converted until I was in college, partly with the uh, influence of Campus Crusade and partly through some uh, charismatic friends of my younger sister. And uh, I became, you know, having grown up in the church, I did not see my primary involvement to be in uh, parachurch organizations such as, as Campus Crusade, but rather in the church itself. I joined a church and uh, began working, uh, you know, uh, churches uh, will put you to work if you're willing. Um, and so I spent some time teaching junior high Sunday school and some uh, helped with some other folks leading the senior high fellowship. And uh, during that uh, two or three year period, I had a number of people who said, you know, you really ought to think about going to seminary. I knew by that, my, although I majored in mathematics uh, and history, I knew by that point that I, there was no way I wanted to teach math in, in high, at the high school level. Uh, and so, uh, by the time I graduated from high school, from college, I had already applied, uh, and was accepted to study at, uh, Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Uh, John Gerstner was still teaching there at the time. Ford Battles was there. Um, although those were men whose names meant nothing to me at the time I went there. Uh, it was only, um, I went to seminary as, uh, sort of semi-charismatic, semi-Arminian, and it was really through the influence of, of men who had come to study uh, with Gerstner um, that I uh, re really became reformed. Uh, sorry about this. We have uh, uh, motion-sensitive lights, and if I don't move enough, they, uh, they shut off. Um, the frozen chosen. Yeah, the frozen chosen. So at any rate, um, 
like I say, I grew up with no in, with no familiarity with the shorter catechism, and it was really not until you know my my uh, my friends who had come to study with Gerstner were directing me, you know, to Lorraine Bettner, to John Calvin, to other Reformed authors, but I, I don't remember any direction to the catechisms or the, or the uh, or the confession, um, and so it was not until I took a polity class in my last year of seminary that the professor required us to memorize one question out of the Shorter Catechism, and that's question four. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And he asked that on the final. You had to be able to answer, to, to write that out. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, like I say, I wasn't catechized growing up, and and so it really wasn't until that point that I really had any particular interest in the in the shorter catechism. And then as I began to make use of it, I began to realize that, of course, we didn't use the language in those days, but what a friend of mine once called, he called the, the confession and, and the catechisms a search engine, search engine into, the, into the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's a great way, both uh, the three of them together, a great way of getting into what the scriptures teach about these topics. And so in my teaching since then, when a particular topic comes up, I, uh, I'll often go to the, to the confession and catechisms first and then work out from that framework. I, uh, I went to seminary with the idea of being a pastor, but uh, discovered while I was in seminary that my gifts were more academic than they were pastoral. So I went into a THM at Princeton after, uh, after seminary uh, then doctoral work at Duke. Uh, there, there's a long story there that I won't tell. Uh, and uh, in 1991, after I, sp- I spent the eight, uh, 89, 90 year teaching at Wofford College, filling in for a man who was on sabbatical. And during that year, a friend of mine put me in contact with Morton Smith at Greenville Seminary. They were looking for somebody who could teach Old Testament and Hebrew. Uh, and so that was what brought us together. I began, as I said, I began teaching there in January of 91, uh, and I served there uh, through December of 2019. Another former student uh, by the name of Chris Larson, who's the CEO and president of Ligonier Ministries, uh, emailed me last uh, spring of 2019 and asked if uh, they might be able to interest me in moving down to Florida and teaching at Reformation Bible College. My wife and I came down to visit, uh, both of us kind of secretly hoping that it would be obvious that this was not the thing to do. Uh, and we left that visit uh, convinced that we couldn't do anything else. Uh, so that's, I've, I'm in my second full semester of teaching here. And that's, uh, and I'm basically teaching very much what I taught at Greenville Seminary. Minus the Hawaiian shirts, coconuts with the little umbrellas and things of that nature, right? I don't remember those at GPTS. Yeah, no, no, no. And I don't have them here either. Um, since you were, you know, you kind of mentioned when you were first introduced to the Shorter Catechism, uh, we kind of always ask this to our the people we interview. Uh, how have you found it helpful over the years? You, you mentioned it briefly, but uh, maybe even for you personally or even your family or even as you train uh, pastors, uh, how is the short catechism helpful? You will often run into a discussion uh, where people will sort of pit the Westminster Shorter Catechism against the Heidelberg Catechism, and they will say, "Well, the Heidelberg Catechism it's it's warmer, it's it's more pastoral," and and 
but what I what I really like about the Westminster is it's precise and it's concise, and that's what I like about it. It's 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 it is a shorter catechism. The and and so when I have a question about a particular topic, what did the divines think? What scriptures uh, were they using? What what uh, kind of exegesis lay in the background of their treatment of this particular question? Um, and so, you know, a good index to the uh, to the catechism and confession, uh, a good uh, scripture index to them. Uh, those are invaluable tools. Um, so, if if I'm uh, you know, for for example, this semester I'm teaching a course on on the prophetic books uh, of the Old Testament, and so I'm one of the things I do is I go through the confession and the catechisms and look at the Old te- the, the prophetic passages uh, that are cited there, uh, and and that leads me then into a doctrinal development of the teachings of the of the prophets in the Old Testament. Last question of kind of curiosity and get to know you. Do you have a favorite shorter catechism question? Uh, it really is that question four, uh, the, the first one that I had to learn. Um, I, it, it just sort of, to me, it encapsulates not just the reform teaching, but really the biblical teaching about who God is. And Dr. Shaw, one question, because I know you, favorite prog rock brand of all time, or if you can't do a favorite prog rock band, top three. Um, well, Yeah. It, it sort of depends on what mood I'm in on and what day of the week it is. Uh, but the top three would be, um, would be King Crimson, uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Uh, and then, um, you know, Rush occasionally will sneak in there. Uh, yes. will occasionally sneak in there. Uh, more recently groups like Porcupine Tree and, um, Dream Theater, uh, so yeah, but I, I would say probably Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and King Crimson would be the my sort of my initial go-to. We'll make sure we put all these in the in the show notes. <laughs> and just so everybody knows, um, I described Dr. Shaw before as the Dosa Keesman of Greenville Seminary. As you were featured on a recent podcast, Dr. Shaw, the host said that you've got range. So if you ever look up Dr. Ben Shaw's. Uh, Facebook post, there's a daily classical post, Beethoven, Mozart, and then some of this prog rock stuff. So uh, you wear many hats, Rabbi. And yeah, I do. Now, now you're a frequent podcast uh, <laughs> a contributor to, to add that to your bio. Yeah. So we, we asked you here today, uh, being that you were my Old Testament prof, and uh, we talked about these things in seminary. I, I just wanted our listeners to glean some wisdom from you on question 25. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Uh, Christ executed the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. So, Dr. Shaw, first question on question 25. Can you explain for us briefly the scope of an Old Testament priest's responsibilities? and Why was the office of the priesthood instituted in the first place? Well, the reason the reason the priesthood was instituted in the first place was because of the necessity for an intermediary, a mediator between God and between God and man. Uh, and in the Old Testament, you really have two offices that fill that responsibility. There is the prophet, 
who speaks from God to man, and then there is the priest who represents men before God. Uh, and the the role of the priest, I, I remember a long time ago having a, a brief conversation with a, a Roman Catholic teenager who said that he didn't have to be he didn't have to be, this wasn't exactly his language, but it sums it up. He didn't have to be righteous because the priest did that for him. And there's a sense, ignoring the first half of that statement, in the Old Testament, the priest is a, a representative righteous one uh, who, uh, as I say, intercedes on behalf of the people, offers sacrifice on behalf of the people. Uh, so he is that that mediator who stands between uh, between men who, by their sin, are under the judgment of God, uh, and yet a God who is ready and willing to be uh, to be placated uh, and to have that relationship restored. I, rem- I remember, uh, you know, part of the priest's garb or the high priest's garb was that uh, with the turban, you know, over mm-hmm. his brow, it would say "Holy to the Lord," and, right, and then on his breastplate were 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So he is a representative holy one. Um, And we'll come back to this later, but all priests of the Old Testament were themselves imperfect and and insufficient. Um, Right. And so they, for example, in the Day of Atonement, the first sacrifices that the priest has to offer are for himself so so that then he is by the time he, he comes to offer the sacrifices for the people, he himself has already entered into a state of holiness. So the first way in which the catechism tells us that Christ executed the office of a priest is actually something related to, but not exactly what a priest did in the Old Testament, because it says that he offered himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. Can you explain why the assembly sort of fronts that, this sacrificial element uh, in, in question 25, and how did Christ satisfy divine justice by his death? The way it says it, in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice, what we see there is that he is both, that he is priest in that he is making an offering, but he is sacrifice in that he himself is what is offered. Uh, so that the Old Testament priests, they would sacrifice, they would offer up a sacrificial animal. But even in the Old Testament, uh, people understood that these, that these sacrificial animals are merely representative. Uh, they rep- they, they, for example, the whole burnt offering that represents the death of the sinner because the soul that sins shall die. Um, and so he then embodies not, you know, not in a, in a, a simply representative fashion, but for those who are joined to him by faith, he actually becomes the sacrifice. But, and so in, in his priestly work, he is functioning in those two roles, both as priest offering the sacrifice, and as the sacrifice being offered. And as part of that sacrifice, you know, a lot of Christians, and I think we all are in full agreement that the death of Christ satisfied the wrath of God. But sort of touching on this, in that the sacrifice of Christ's life, 
it's not just that he died for our sins, but that he lived and fulfilled all righteousness. Could you talk briefly about active and passive obedience and how these together are a part of this sacrificing of Christ? Right. The, the, what's usually called the active obedience uh, of Christ is his, well, I'll start with the passive obedience. The, the, what's usually called the passive obedience of Christ is his actual death uh, on the cross, uh, where Christ is, in a sense, the recipient. He's the one being acted on. The active obedience of Christ is his observing the law of God perfectly from the, from the time of his birth up to the time of his death. And when a believer is joined by faith to Christ, that perfect obedience is accounted to the believer, and as well as the suffering of, and death of Christ is accounted to the believer. So that it, it's not only that Christ died for us, but Christ also lived for us. And I think that's represented, for example, uh, both of those aspects are represented in the Old Testament sacrifices in that the whole burnt offering represented the, the death of the sinner. The grain offering represented the life of the sinner. You know, Paul uh, in Romans 12, uh, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a sacrifice of life. And that, the grain, uh, the, the bread being the staff of life, represents that presenting of God to, a, if you will, a life well lived. Uh, which we, of course, uh, do not accomplish, uh, but which Christ has has accomplished for us. Uh, and then there are other aspects also of, of the atonement. Um, it goes on and talks about reconciling us to God. With, with, with sin, we broke that relationship, uh, and we need to be, not only do, does God's anger need to be placated, we need to be reconciled to God um, and so, for example, in, um, in, first, in 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about we have the ministry of reconciliation. And that's not primarily the reconciliation of man to man. It's the reconciliation of, 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 of man to God. Uh, and that's represented in the, in the peace or fellowship offerings of the Old Testament, where, uh, as it were, both sides partake of, uh, of the sacrifice. Uh, and then the, of course, the uh, the making continual intercession for us. When you look at the sacrifices in the Old Testament, there was a lamb offered every morning, a lamb offered every evening, on the Sabbath day, a double offering. That was the absolute minimum. And yet, what that meant was that the smoke of that sacrifice was going up continually, representing that continual rep- intercession by Christ. And you really. Uh anticipated what I was going to ask next. You know, the catechism is succinct, it's precise, no wasted words. And when they talk about satisfying divine justice and reconcile us to God, I think that you hit on it, is that it's not just legal pardon that we need, but that there's also a relationship that was fractured by the fall. And so not only are we pardoned, and God's sort of like, well, you know, legally, I got to forgive you. But there's this reconciliation and this familial relationship that is established that we're adopted by God into his family through Christ, our elder brother. The, uh, the chapter on adoption in the, uh, in the confession is sometimes kind of skipped over because it's not a very long chapter, but it really is 
an essential element uh, of the gospel that that we are not just you know it, it, it's not just that God is no longer angry at us, if you will. It is that He has reached out and the way a loving father embraces uh, a child, God has done that in Christ. Um, and you know, as, as the you know, of course, the image of the of the prodigal son returning home, and his, the father just embracing him and welcoming him back into the family. That's the that's the image that we have of the reconciling work of Christ. Yeah, we're not tolerated. We are welcomed, and we are you know dearly you know we are loved um, right. by the father. So, sort of you know, you you talked about this earlier, priests today. So we uh, talked with Professor Glodo about, you know, if you stay up late and maybe you watch television preachers, someone will introduce himself as prophet so-and-so. Um, but today there are people who would claim the name of priest. The book of Hebrews really stresses this. No more need for earthly intermediaries or mediators. Can you explain to us why we have no longer a need for priests like we had in the Old Testament? The need for the priest in the Old Testament was because of that two-sided need of a mediator, uh, the, prophet, the, the, the prophet who spoke from God to man, and then the priest who spoke on behalf of men with God. But that priestly role in the Old Testament was a, uh, a type. It was a shadow pointing to the priest who would be the perfect priest as as Hebrews makes abundantly clear, we have that perfect priest in Christ. Uh, and so even though the word priest comes to us from the same root as the word presbyter, um, those two words really have different connotations in today's, in today's context. And, the, and as, again, as Hebrews makes abundantly clear, priesthood of Levi, uh, the line of Aaron through the tribe of Levi, that was that was a type. It, it was passing away because those men were prevented by death from really being fully, permanently priests. Christ, having been raised from the dead, it no longer has that limitation. Uh, and so, uh, you know, yes, there are uh, uh, Christian churches, or at least uh, churches that identify as Christians, who talk about priests. But no, they're not Christ. Uh, we have Christ. We don't, need, we don't need another Aaron. And that's really the whole thrust of the book of Hebrews, the superiority of Christ over all the Old Testament types and shadows. Uh, I had heard one pastor preaching on this topic was using as an illustration. You know, my wife and I, we did long distance dating uh, back in the early 2000s, and we wrote each other love letters. And now that we're married, it would be odd for us to communicate solely through those same love letters, because now we have each other, right? We are right. experiencing the reality. And so do we have that reality in the priesthood of Christ. Now, I wanted to ask you sort of a BT question. Okay. Melchizedek. Yes. We're talking about the book of Hebrews. We're talking about the eternal and unending intercession of Christ. And then the writer of Hebrews takes us back to Melchizedek, a figure from Genesis 14. And some of our listeners might wonder, why are we brought back there? Can you explain how Melchizedek is factors into this eternal priesthood of Christ? Yeah, there, there's actually two aspects to it. Uh, one aspect is that 
Melchizedek comes before the Aaronic priesthood. Uh, and uh, the point that the author of Hebrews makes is that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. The lesser pays tithes to the greater. So Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And Aaron, still as it were, the tribe of Levi, still as it were, being in the loins of Abraham, which is the kind of language that the author of Hebrews uses, is obviously lesser than, than Melchizedek. So that aspect, the lesser pays tithes to the greater. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, therefore greater than Isaac, Jacob, Levi, Aaron. The, the second aspect is that Melchizedek is introduced without any genealogy, and he's probably the only person in the book of Genesis that that's true of. Uh, and so there's a, a timelessness and an eternity uh, aspect, if you will, to the person of Melchizedek. He appears on the scene without, uh, w- without any uh, warning, and he disappears without any warning. And so in that sense, he's a figure uh, of Christ who uh, appears above, you know, appears for a time, as it were, uh, and and yet uh, remains, and there's there's still that eternal aspect, if you will. Um, and it 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 can be a little difficult to grasp, but I think those are the really the two points that the author of Hebrews is making about Melchizedek. Yeah, some people believe that Melchizedek was like a pre-incarnate Christ, but I think here we're to understand that Melchizedek was a type of Christ. And someone I think said the way that Melchizedek is presented. He was a real human being, that he, he was born and that he did die, but his presentation in Scripture suggests, look at, ha- look at literary Melchizedek, without right. days, without end. Right. Yeah, okay. I think that's the point. All right. Well, that's helpful for those folks that are maybe dipping into the book of Hebrews for the first time. Uh, so, Tommy, questions? Yeah, uh, Dr. Shaw, this is, I guess, would be the last question. One thing that me and Stephen's trying to do with this podcast is to kind of introduce our listeners to other resources. We want them to like, continue the conversation. I think there's a sense of, you know, the professional has spoken. I don't have to think about this anymore mindset in our world today, uh, particularly in the church. So what are some resources uh, to help our listeners listen, you know, maybe understand the Old Testament better, but particularly with this whole idea of uh, priesthood and Christ being our ultimate priest. Uh, so any... Um, I think the first the first thing that I would direct you to would be uh, Michael Morales's book, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? It, it's technically speaking a, a, a treatise on Leviticus, but it really does cover the whole range of uh, of biblical theology and, and, and taking us from Leviticus to Christ. That would be, I mean, it, it, it's not, I wouldn't say that it's an easy read, but it's certainly a very helpful read. Uh, something that's a little more accessible probably would be uh, Edmund Clowney's little book, The Unfolding Mystery, I think is the title of it. Uh, Palmer Robertson's The Christ of the Covenants, uh, those kinds of those would probably be the sort of off the top of my head things that I would that I would suggest to people. Well, Rabbi, thanks so much for those resources and thanks for your time and your wisdom. We appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure again.
we're we're closer now. Uh, we've we've both fled the state of South Carolina, a delightful state, but it's good to have you here in the Sunshine State. Next time you're up this way, let me and Tommy uh, pick your brain about all things prog rock. We'd like that very much. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for listening in, everybody. We enjoyed the time together. Look forward to time with you again. Until we meet, keep it short. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executed the office of a priest in his once offering above himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession